Well, this is the second Christmas message I've gotten to preach in Emmanuel in a row, so I figured I could start uh, establishing a Christmas tradition. I think partly because Aaron doesn't want to preach Christmas Day, I'm not sure. Um, but like that last servant, like my last sermon, I want to offer a question at the end that you can discuss with your friends and family over today and tomorrow. But this question is probably best saved after all the presents are unwrapped and the coffee is out later at night. My sermon, as Aaron mentioned, is also the fourth in our Advent series called Good News for Troubling Times, and I'm going to be preaching from Luke chapter 2, so you can go ahead and turn with me there in your bulletin. You know, in our world, power is a kind of resource, and those who have it tend to reinvest it in themselves. It's the idea that you have to have money to make money. Well, in the same way, you have to have power to garner more of it. And people with sway and influence are often tempted to garner more power for themselves by extracting from the weak and the vulnerable. This is the trade of your life for my own, the life of the weak for the benefit of the powerful. And a vivid example of this comes from the life of Woodrow Wilson, who was elected president in 1912, and soon after he turned his sights towards the resegregation of the federal civil service. Gordon J. Davis, an African-American lawyer, has this to say about his grandfather's experience with Woodrow Wilson and resegregation. Even as the structures of Jim Crow segregation began to harden in the South, Washington, D.C. and the Federal Civil Service offered African-Americans real opportunity for employment and advancement. Thousands passed the civil service exam to gain coveted spots in government agencies and departments. In 1882, soon after graduating from high school, the young John Davis, my grandfather, secured a job at the government printing office. Over a long career, he rose through the ranks from laborer to a position in mid-level management. He supervised an office in which many of his employees were white men. He had a farm in Virginia and a home in Washington. By 1908, he was earning the considerable salary for an African-American of $1,400 per year. But only months after Woodrow Wilson was sworn in as president in 1913, my grandfather was demoted. He was shuttled from department to department in various menial jobs and eventually became a messenger in the War Department, where he made only $720 a year. That's some sobering stuff. In line with what Gordon Davis writes about his grandfather's experience, many other deserving people would never get a shot at the federal civil service because Woodrow Wilson soon began to require a picture to be submitted with every civil service exam. Institutional racism all to shore up popular support for himself and his political allies. The life of the downtrodden for the benefit of the powerful. And we see in the gospel accounts Herod and his slaughter of the innocents. Herod killed thousands of babies in order to shore up his throne against the threat of Jesus the Messiah, the very lives of the children for his own. So this morning, where does all this misuse of power leave us? Where does this misuse of power leave especially people from small places? People with little or no money, like the shepherds in Luke 2, or people here in Uptown or in this room, people with little sway who may not necessarily be the objects of the abuse of power, but nevertheless feel powerless to stop it. And to make things even more disappointing, many people come to Chicago because it seems like a big place where you can have your own sway and influence. What they find is that we're all the proprietors of small places. We have our families, our jobs, our group of friends, 
but we manage small places that are only noticed by the powerful when they need something from us. In Chicago, we see leaders exploiting the poor for their own benefit. We see layoffs to improve profit margins. We see scheming and controlling relationships. We see leaders in big places using those from small places. And ultimately, we see leaders looking out for themselves. And so what happens is we start to think it's all just a game and we become disillusioned. There's no possibility of progress. In fact, it even starts to sound enlightened to think you have it figured out and everyone else is holding on to some false hope. But the birth of Jesus brings good news for those disillusioned with leaders. It's good news for managers of small places. We are told in Luke 2.12 that with the birth of Mary's child, with the coming of Jesus, Christ the Lord has arrived. Which is another way of saying that he is the one chosen by God. He is the Christ chosen to be the savior of God's people. And also that he is the divine king. He is Lord. And it's no coincidence that the birth of Christ is contrasted with the exploitative Roman emperor Caesar Augustus in Luke chapter 2. As Augustus claimed for himself similar titles as were bestowed upon Jesus, the true Christ and the true Lord. And in contrast with the Roman emperor, we're going to look this morning at three defining characteristics of the true Christ and Lord, because we need these titles to be fleshed out. We need to know how Christ the Lord will reign. This can help explain what I'm talking about. Around the time of the Baseball World Series, I saw a headline in the news that said, entire nation to receive free food. Sounds like good news, right? Well, then I kept reading, and it said that because a player successfully stole a base during the World Series, everyone was going to get free food, but that food was Taco Bell. Um, Not exactly good news, but things kept getting worse. The free food was a Doritos Locos taco. So I don't even know if that counts as human-grade food. So title may be a little misleading. But headlines, like titles, can bring some false hope to us, right? We need to look beyond the headlines and read the article, get into the text, and see why it's good news that Jesus is both Christ and Lord. It's not simply good news that Jesus is the rightful person to hold these titles, as Augustus called himself similar titles, but at the same time he perpetrated terrible abuse on his own people. So at the time of the birth of Jesus, Augustus was the emperor of Rome, and he was the adopted son of Julius Caesar. The extent of his power can be seen in verses 1 through 3 of Luke 2. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. Augustus disrupted the lives of everyone in his empire, their jobs, their families, and made people walk a great distance in order to conduct a census. The purpose of this great inconvenience was both to collect a tax and to have an oath of allegiance sworn to the emperor, their life for his own. And Augustus wasn't humble about his perceived power. He encouraged the worship of his adoptive father as a divine being, and he allowed for the worship of his own supposed divine attributes. And the name he chose for himself, Augustus, means revered. And he was referred to, listen to this, as both Lord and Savior of the Roman Empire. And the reason he had these titles was for the supposed peace that he brought to the Roman Empire. This is even more striking. And his very birth was later later heralded as good news by his subjects because of this peace that he brought. This counterfeit peace was referred to as the Pax Romana, or the Peace of Rome. It was ultimately based on Rome's abuse of power, and it was in exchange of the life of the rest of the empire for the life of the capital. 
It was a peace based on complete submission and subordination, mandatory military service and taxes to support the capital. If you have questions about the nuances of that, you can watch The Hunger Games, uh, explain everything to you. Uh, but if you stepped out of line, you were completely and utterly destroyed. The idea was your life for my own, your country for my own. And this fake peace was in some ways similar to an abusive relationship where everything may seem fine on the outside, but the abuser keeps outward appearances up through fear and intimidation behind the scenes. Well, in contrast to Augustus, the first thing we see about Jesus, the true Christ and the true Lord, from Luke chapter 2, verses 4 through 7, is that he is a humble king. You know, my friend John, for many years, worked at the Ritz-Carlton Hotel in the Beverly Hills. And when he was employed there, he was told that he had to pull out all the stops when celebrities came. So he had all kinds of famous people come through there. When they arrived, his job was to give them the best rooms and the best service. If they ordered something out on the menu, he had to go to a nearby restaurant and get it for him. And a few times, he even had to lace up his running shoes in order to play tennis with some well-known figure. Well, this is not the treatment Mary and Joseph received. They were not the kind of people who would have been recognized. They were not the kind of people with money to slip under the table to the front desk attendant so that they could find a room in the inn when everything was sold out. These were people from a small place, people we never would have heard about if they were not the parent and step-parent of God in the flesh. Look at verses four through seven with me here. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child, And when they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there's no place for them in the inn. This is how God in the flesh, Christ the Lord, chose to come. He did not come at the front of a vast and terrifying army. He did not announce his presence with fanfare. He came as an infant completely dependent on his obscure parents to a backwards town in a no-name province of Rome. But this is tremendously good news Augustus was a self-aggrandizing sovereign whose rule was based on abusing his power to force humility on his subjects. But Christ the Lord is a king who holds infinitely more powerful than Augustus, more power than Augustus, but he is as humble as he is powerful. Here is finally a ruler we can trust, one who does not use his power to exploit the weak and the vulnerable, but sets aside power and glory in order to identify with the weak and the vulnerable. A ruler who for his entire life, until he willingly laid down his life for us, never abused his power. In fact, later in his life, he rebuked Satan and his offer of earthly rule in order to lay down his life for our own. Second thing we learn about Jesus, about this Christ the Lord from Luke 2, is that he is a king who cares for all people. In verse 1, it stated that Augustus was able to call the whole world to take a census. This was referring only to the Roman Empire, but the idea is that Augustus viewed himself as the ruler of the whole world. But his concern and care was not towards the downtrodden and the weak, only those who were worth his time. But look at verses 8 through 12. In the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you Good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. 
Look at that in verse 10. Fear not for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Here's good news for us because the humble king, Christ the Lord, is the true king over the whole world, but he cares deeply for all of his subjects. There's no one outside of his reach or anyone who goes unnoticed. The good news is that there's no small places to God. And we have a visual representation of this truth in verses 8 through 12. The angels came to bring good news about the reign of Jesus to shepherds. You have to imagine, this is like a presidential candidate announcing her or his presidency in Apple Valley, Idaho, without any cameras present. This is really as far out of the way and as low on the social ladder as you can go. These shepherds would have been men who owned a small piece of land but had to supplement their income by tending to other people's animals. They were considered so untrustworthy they were not allowed to testify in court and were often considered to be religiously unclean and therefore unfit for temple worship. But the reign of Christ is for these shepherds as it is for everyone. This is good news for people in small places. It means there's a king over all the rulers who deeply cares for you, deeply loves you, and this Christ the Lord is infinitely powerful and infinitely humble. And isn't that what we're longing for? We want to be cared for, protected, but it's so hard to trust a ruler, family members, a boss, a politician, when they have hurt us. What we need is someone who has the power to rule, has authority, can affect great change, but is not arrogant or proud, but is humble and good and loving and is identified with all of us. Third thing we learn about Christ the Lord is that he offers true and genuine peace under his rule. Not the peace of Rome that was based on exploitation and coercion, but authentic and lasting peace. This word peace here means something like things are as they should be, as we know they should be. And Jesus offers peace between nations, families, spouses. But first and foremost, the peace he brings is between God and man. In verse 14, after announcing the birth of Jesus to the shepherds, a vast host of angels appear, the heavens empty, and they all together sing, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. And we get a hint as to the nature of this peace back in verses 9 through 10. And an angel of the Lord appeared to the shepherds, and the glory of the Lord shone all around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. When the glory of God was revealed to the shepherds, they recoiled. We are told that they were filled with great fear. This is because, as one pastor puts it, when we see God for who he really is, our own creatureliness is exposed. This would be the same experience as for us or for Emperor Augustus as it was for the shepherds. You can think of it this way. A few weeks ago at my job with an ad agency, someone mentioned that the Russian Olympic team was barred from competition in this year's Winter Games. I've never seen this particular movie I was about to mention, but for some stupid reason, I announced in the office that I had recently seen a documentary that detailed the doping allegations against the Russian team. Very lame way to try to be cool. People were impressed. Everything was going great. Well, the only problem was someone else in the office had actually seen this movie that I was talking about. And people started asking tough questions like, what was the name of the movie? Um, (laughs) Which I hadn't bothered to look up. And the other gentleman was able to answer very quickly. Um, The point is that when we are pretending and someone else comes along who has not, we get exposed. You know, you can pretend you're good at quoting Lord of the Rings, but then Father Aaron comes along. (laughs) and you are exposed. 
But the point is that when we see God for who he really is, when we see his glory, we realize that our sin and failure, we realize our own sin and failure and rebellion. We see that we are not God and we are exposed. And this exposure reveals we have not been managing our small places well. We rightfully have indignation against the powerful in big places, but the light of God shines on, when the light of God shines on our own use of power, we see how we use our limited sway and influence to coerce and manipulate in our own small places. And so the shepherds recoiled, but the angels had good news that could replace their great fear, the text tells us, in exchange for great joy. This great joy can be found because Christ the Lord brings peace first and foremost between God and to all those with whom God is pleased. This does not mean God plays favorites. It simply means peace can be found between God and for all those who repent and come under the lordship of the true Christ and the true Lord. He delivers people from their sin and into his divine kingdom. He is indeed Christ the Lord, the divine deliverer who saves people from themselves. So the humble king, Christ the Lord, who is the rightful ruler of all people, offers you peace through deliverance from your sin and rebellion into his kingdom and into his lordship. He forces it on no one, but offers it to everyone as he cares for all people equally. And this peace is made possible through his ultimate rejection. Just as he was rejected at his birth, so he was rejected at his death. Just as there's no room for him in the end, so he was cast aside later in life. Just as he was wrapped in cloth and laid in a manger, Luke tells us later that after his death, he was wrapped in cloth and laid in a tomb. He was rejected on our behalf. He divested himself of power so that we may find peace with God. Augustus says, your life for my own. Jesus says, my life for yours. And so to the disillusioned, as to all people, he says, first and foremost, humble yourselves and come find peace in me. And the peace Jesus brings means there is even more hope for the disillusion because he is the rightful king of kings. He is Lord over all their earthly rulers. This is not a false hope and it does not deny reality. It means there is hope for the disillusion because Jesus reigns sovereign over all people and all kings and rulers will one day have to give an account to him. And also today that they are limited by him. And there is hope for great change as more and more people come into his kingdom and begin to advocate on behalf, on behalf of the poor and the weak and the downtrodden. And lastly, I will say that Christ the Lord offers peace between women and men, husbands and wives, friends, all people. There's peace offered for broken relationships in the kingdom of the humble ruler. In his kingdom, you can forgive because you yourself have been forgiven so much. So like, like I mentioned at the beginning of the sermon, what I want to do now is move towards the question that I'll leave you with this morning. I want you to take a moment and think, who will I see over Christmas who will I be sitting with over dinner with whom I do not have peace? Think about relationships you have where things are not as they should be. Of course, we have to mention that some relationships need distance. and You might need to separate yourselves, but take a minute and think, who will I see with whom there is not peace? And so after the presents are unwrapped and the coffee is out, I would ask you to reach out to that person who has come to mind this morning and say, what can I do to bring peace between us? And let's celebrate this Christmas that we have a humble king who offers peace to all people. Pray these things in the name of the Father, Son, and